0: Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. Why don't we pray? Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we could come together and we could just hear your word. We thank you that your word is true, your word cuts, your word penetrates, but also your word encourages. And we pray, Father, that this morning we would hear from you. I pray, Lord, that it would be more than just my words, that it would be the work of your spirit taking the word of Christ and penetrating our hearts. And God, I pray if, if there are those who are needing encouragement, I pray, I pray your text would definitely do that. I pray if there are those who don't know you, I pray that they would come to know you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. Thank you that we can be in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, oftentimes as we look at the world, living for Christ can seem at times, if we are candid, daunting. The news show horrific sins against each other. I don't know if you're following. There's just a a guy beat another man to death over by the strand in Oceanside. Uh, His co-worker just down The block there. Talk shows sensationalize broken families. They sensationalize immoral relationships and disobedient children. Friends and relatives are cold or hostile to Christians and the word of God. And it is enough at times to want to feel defeated, right? You know the facts that you will be in heaven with Christ, but in the here and now, it doesn't quite feel like you are truly royalty in Christ. And sometimes you feel like you are losing. Sometimes I feel like like you want to gain ground, but sometimes it feels like you're losing. And if your countenance is prone to bouts of depression, if your attitude is prone to bouts of depression, You can feel like there is no hope. Uh, I was talking to a a missionary from South Asia, and uh, this one gal, uh, he and his wife, they suffered the loss of, the gal suffered the loss of her in-laws, and then she found her friend murdered in the same place where we used to serve over there and she goes I think this might be all because you're depressed. I said I think, you think? You think? And even as Christians and we know the end game, we know what's going to happen. We know that Satan and and all the enemies of Christ will finally finally be thrown into the lake of fire, but sometimes you feel beat up. You can feel like sometimes there's no hope or sometimes the trials They just come like waves in succession. One is enough to knock the wind out of your sails, but several of them just piling on kind of take its toll. See, the Apostle John mentions this same topic and writes to the church to encourage them with the fact that in Christ they will not only be victorious, be victorious, but they are victorious. And I don't think we rest in that. I mean we sometimes we talk about ourselves as sheep, as saints, as forgiven, as redeemed. The Bible now is talking about Christians as overcomers, victorious. Despite the enemies of the gospel, despite the allure of the world, despite the remaining fallenness of your own flesh, Despite the devil himself, God says that in Christ, listen, in Christ, you are invincible. Whoa. Are we pushing that language too much? No, if I said, by yourself, you are invincible, you would say, hey, that's positive thinking. That's not Christianity. But in Christ, in Christ, brothers and sisters you are invincible. And God gave this passage to you this morning so that you would live out your victorious life in Christ. And the real center of this passage, let me read it in verses 1 to 5 of 1 John chapter 5 verses 1 to 5. He says, "Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Verse 4, who for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And we want to center here on verse 4. Okay, Whatever is born of God, that means anyone who has come to regeneration, Anyone who has come face to face with Christ through his spiritual eyes by faith, right? And anyone who has trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior solely, it says here, overcomes the world. Now, this sounds like almost hyperbolic, uh, hyper, hyperbolic language, right? Hyperbolic. Did I say that right? Sounds like hyperbolic language. Almost exaggerated language, right? And yet God says, "No, this is the tr- this is a true fact of you in Christ." The word there to overcome is the word nikao, where we get the word even Nike. You know, the swish—they didn't create that, right? The Nike brand. Um, nikao means to be victor. It means to prevail. It means to conquer. Uh, it means victory. The, the goddess of victory, uh, the Greek goddess of victory, Nike, would help Zeus in times of war. And so John strips the meaning out of this, out of the Greek mythology. He takes this idea of victory over war and battle, of overcoming. He takes that idea and he gives it to the Christian in Christ. He says... You are a victor. You are an overcomer. You are invincible in Christ. It is not invincible in the way that Marvel or, uh, what is it, Marvel or any of the Avengers or whatever that is, right? Not in that way. In quite a different way, God says, When I give faith to my children, when they are born again and they exercise faith, they have a faith that is indestructible. And the reason why it's indestructible is because I am the origin of it and I am the protector of it. Now, Paul... Uses the same language, if you guys remember, in uh, Romans chapter 8. I'll just, I'll just uh, mention the text to you. Remember in 8.35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? He draws the most difficult thing that could ever face a Christian. The threat of death. Threat of loss. He says, Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says, Amazingly, he says this to Christians, okay, with its application to us, in all these things, now he says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us and now he takes that word nikao and he adds a prefix to it hooper or you could say hyper we really conquer we over conquer you know and sometimes in sports teams we when we ask did you win did you win the match oh i demolished the opponent right god says you demolish the opponent. God says you destroy your opponents. You overwhelmingly conquer. I don't seem so strong. I don't think I could even bench 200 pounds. And yet, God says, You have no idea. The perseverant faith that I place in you, it cannot be stopped. It can be discouraged, but it cannot ultimately ever be stopped. Because I've placed that in you, my child. Now, what does it mean to be victorious in Christ? We got to look with the lens of God. Victorious in Christ doesn't mean I name it and claim it and I get any car I want. That's the one I want. Victorious in Christ does not mean my best life now, like some author would write. Victorious in Christ does not mean that God, I have my own journey and God's going to help me on the way. I'm going to do this and maybe if I just kind of pray, God's going to help me on the way. No, the way that John has told us to identify what a victorious life or that of a Christian are by three verifiable characteristics. Three verifiable characteristics, and what God, what John does, even in the book of John, as he is writing, when he writes these characteristics, it is meant to elicit a response. It is not simply for you to to understand. Oh, okay, that's what a, that's what a Christian is, and now I know, and I have this data. I have this data in my mind, and now it's good for me to know. And now you know, I'm just gonna put it on the shelf and just keep going. No, when. John says, these are the marks of a Christian. These are the marks of an overcomer. These are the marks of a victor. What happens is, in the life of a Christian, he sees it, and it causes more encouragement to live up to that, to desire to follow that in the power of Christ. Now, you remember, I keep saying, in Christ, in the power of Christ. Because if you do this apart from Christ, you're going to fall on your face. But in Christ we can do, what, is, what does Paul say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now see, this, is, this really hits to the practical level. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can. God says we have overwhelmingly conquered, but we got to measure it the way God measures it. How does he measure it? He measures it by three identifying marks. How can you tell someone is living a victorious life? How can you tell someone is a Christian? He has these three identifying marks, and he's been talking about it all through 1 John, and he's now going to cycle through it again. The first one, keep believing in his son. Keep believing in his son. And now, he doesn't go linearly. Do you know what I'm saying? John doesn't go linearly. He goes circularly. So he'll talk about something and then he'll mention it again in verses 4 and 5. And so we're going to follow our outline that way so we can, uh, we can get a gauge of what's going on now. Keep believing in his son. First, the Christian, the one who is an overcomer, has correct faith. And when I say correct faith, when I say correct faith, people get offended right away. You have to have correct faith. You can't just believe sincerely in certain things and think you're okay. Oh, they're okay. They really believe in that. Oh, they're okay. They really believe in that. God says when a victor, an overcomer, a Christian has correct faith. This is the object of which what faith grabs onto. Notice in verses, verse one in the first portion. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. This is very interesting how the word grammar is in this text. He says, whoever believes, first, believes here is in the present active. And all that means is that this person who claims to be a Christian consistently believes, consistently carries on. Whether there's trial, whether there's difficulty, there can be spots of discouragement, there could be spots of sin. But God says when He saves someone, they continue in the faith, present tense. They continue. You don't say, I believed before and now I don't believe. Or, I used to be a Christian. No, you were never a Christian. The person who is a Christian still believes but what's what is astonishing is how he connects it he says whoever believes that jesus is the christ then he says is born of god now it's kind of difficult to see in the english but it's better translated it gives a fuller meaning if you translate that to has been born of god has been born of god and you could you could prove that because the grammar is in is born of God there, is in the perfect passive, okay? Passive meaning, the action is received. Perfect meaning, it has happened in the past, with ongoing results. Now you have to watch, what he's saying. He's saying, the one who has been born of God, continually believes. You notice the order, okay? The one who past tense, has been born of God, continually believes and this this if, I, if, if you take away anything from this this morning this ought to weigh on you the reason why you still believe is because god first acted in you he caused you to be born again and sorry but the order of saying i believe therefore i'm born again is wrong from this verse, faith doesn't make you born again. Being born again causes faith. Wow. Now, let's smoke that in your theological pipe. Right? But what this is saying is, Christ has, those, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. What accounts for your belief? What accounts for your faith? What accounts for your enduring love for Jesus? Why do you still keep believing in Jesus? Because you've been born again. He has given you life from on high. You're a different person if you've come to know him. Now, he says says this, there are certain things that you must hold on to. There are differences in Christians, I understand that. They can be secondary, tertiary, I understand that. But there are certain things about Christ, certain non-negotiables that cannot be changed, that cannot be different between us. Or else, by definition, you're not a Christian. He says here, first, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. You have to believe in, first, Jesus' humanity. Jesus, Christ came down... Uh, second person of the trinity he came down and put on flesh we know this from first john chapter one he says what was from the beginning what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life now john is saying i touched him i held him i want you to know i've seen him he is real we ate breakfast with him i lived with him for three years i saw him die You have to believe in Christ's humanity. You have to believe in Christ's mission. He says that Jesus is the Christ. You remember, Christ here is the Greek translation of what the Hebrew calls the Messiah. He is the appointed one. He is to be the suffering servant. He is the one who is to receive the lashes for our sins. That is His mission. You have to receive Christ's regeneration not that Christ was regenerated but that he gives regeneration notice he says whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God when you are born you have faith in him as we have talked about but you also have to believe in Christ's deity look at verse 5 look at verse 5 who is the one who overcomes the world But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God, who is the overcomer, who is the victor, who is the who is the Christian. He says he who believes that Jesus and now he gives him a different title. He calls him the son of God. And we know from John and we know from John chapter eight. and We know from the gospel of John that they had problems with this statement. You call yourself the son of God. We don't, we don't want to kill you because you did miracles, you remember? But you call yourself the son of God. And this is what they blamed him. And why, why is it such a big deal? Because he says, you call yourself the son of God, making yourself equal to the father. And they wanted to kill him for it. So as a Christian, with uh, you have to believe these things. How do you know that you're a victor? Do you believe? Do you hold? Do you trust? It's not just an intellectual assent. Yeah, I agree, but I actually trust in this. He says that, number one, Christ's humanity. Number two, Christ's mission. Number three, Christ's regeneration that he gives to saints. Number four, Christ's deity. Christ's deity. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Anyone who disagree with, disagrees with this. Well, I'll let the text speak for itself. Look at who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So it's, it's not okay if, you, if God the Father gives this very gift of his own son. It's not okay that you dishonor him. It's not okay that you put him on the pantheon of other gods. It's not okay that you compare him to Buddha and to Muhammad and to Confucius. It is not okay. Why? Because you don't understand his glory, his majesty, his honor. Now, the Christian will hold to this. In short, it is all essential Christian doctrine Beware, guys, beware of folks' tendencies to sweep all doctrine under the rug for the sake of pragmatism, for the sake of practicality, or simply good feelings to be maintained. Um, Believing wrongly about the person of Christ is no mere detail or some point of trivia to be debated Believing wrongly about the person of Christ is not only catastrophic, but eternally so. Now, my application, I think I told some of you guys this story. Uh, I was supposed to meet Mike, and I messed up in communication, which he is patient with me. So he ended up at the Thai restaurant without picking me up, and I was stuck at home with no car. So I called an Uber driver. And she came and got me, and we got into the, a discussion. Uh, and she began to tell me of who she thought Christ was. She was a Mormon, and she said that Jesus is a created being, uh, but it's all okay, we're all Christians. She just kept trying to say that. See, because I, I go to the church of Jesus Christ. She tried to say that. And as I attempted to bring light to what Scripture teaches, i had to bring a sharp contrast of what she was saying we do not believe that jesus is a created being we do not we do not say that why because jesus is the christ because in the beginning was the word and the word was what with god and the word was god and the word uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us because john says i beheld him and i touched him because, John's, because Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Over and over. Because Colossians says, he is, he is the firstborn of all creation. He creates all things. He upholds all things. Because Hebrews says, he upholds all things by the power of his hand. Because he is the radiance of the Father. The exact representation of his nature. And so, when we came away from that discussion... We, I had to make it known that the Christ she worshipped was not the Christ of the Bible. Brothers and sisters, what accounts for your faith in Christ right now, despite all the difficulties, despite the family problems, despite, despite the financial problems, despite the struggle and stress, despite the sin in the world and the sin in yourself, what accounts for it? You have been born again and you believe in these truths and you hold to them if you trust in Christ now it's not the not just a correct faith but it's also a perseverant faith so if the first portion of that is what faith grabs into grabs to the second portion of this is what faith looks like what does faith look like okay How can we see it? What is it? Does it have an outside manifestation because of its supernatural origin? Look at 4a. Look at 4a, verse 4a. He says here, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Notice he says, whatever is born of God. We already dealt with this. But if you have been saved, if you have been changed, if you have come to saving faith, it is an indication that you have been born again. And now, he says, because of its supernatural protection. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Here's, here's amazing. Does it mean, does victory mean here, does victory mean that we will topple ungodly government? Does victory mean that we will topple ungodly laws? Does it victory mean that if we protest enough and we protest laws that are unbiblical, and they actually come down, does that mean we have victory? Does victory mean being able to change the legislation? No, victory is this. This is the victory, look at 4B, that has overcome the world. And he says what? That you are leaders, that we are politicians. He says no, our faith. I I don't think we quite grasp the supernaturality of what is occurring, brothers and sisters. When you came to faith, when God called you out of death into life, out of darkness into His light, what God has done is He has given you regeneration. He has given you new life. And now this faith cannot be stopped, brothers and sisters. It could be discouraged at times, I understand. But it cannot be stopped. He says our victory is our faith. And when your family, if you've ever been there, I've been there. When your family says, talks like Job's wife and says, why do you still believe in Jesus? Why do you still do that? Don't you know you're wasting your life? Why are you still going to church? You could be making so much more money if you did this. You could be doing that. Why do you still do that? You, you know the only reason the only reason why you still believe in Jesus is because he has given you victorious faith that cannot be stopped. And if you think this strength strength comes from yourself, you're wrong. Have you ever into the place where there is no, it gets so bad, there is no reason, worldly reason to keep believing. What does a Christian do? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I like to look at different heroes of the faith for our kids. it's amazing. I mean even even Bethany Hamilton because the kids got into surfing, you know. Bethany Hamilton had her arm bit off by a shark and she still surfs. And God God says and she said, you know, it was all in God's plan, but I still trust him. What? Your arm got bitten off, right? What causes a Christian to still believe, even after they've been knocked around? God has given you overcoming faith. Let this fan a fire in you, brothers and sisters. Let it fan. Let it grow stronger. Now, he says this is the victory that has overcome the world, or this is the nikei that is nikao, the world, that is He uses the same word, right? But what is it? Well, first, you have a protected relationship with God. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. It cannot be destroyed. You are right with God forever and ever if you have placed your faith in Christ. And I want to prove it to you. Come with me. Let's look at some verses, okay? Romans chapter 8 and verse Thirty-eight. Look at this. You have to look. Romans 8. Romans 8. 38. 37. Remember, but in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. He uses the same word through him who loved us. And then verse 38. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All the powers of hell could be cast on you brothers and sisters. All the powers of this world all its dignitaries and its politicians everything your friends your family could deny you And yet God says, it will never separate you from me. Nothing will. Nothing will. Nothing will. We are victors over the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, I'll read this to you. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They're just light affliction. They're just problems. When you look at the problems of your life and they are big and they are painful now. But let me tell you, when you get to glory, you will say, man, that was nothing. That was nothing. It's kind of like when you were a kid growing up in high school and you say, man, I got so many problems. And then as you grow up and then you help your shepherd, your kids through it, they go, man, I got so many problems. And then you go, let me help you. That's not really that big in the whole scheme of things. It feels like it, right? But when you get past it, it only feels what? It's light, right? Brothers and sisters, God promises the intensity you feel now when you go to glory, it would have been all worth it, following Jesus, giving up for Jesus, giving your heart to Jesus and to others. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. Victors over death. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read this in the interest of time, 1554. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying, what is written, and now Paul, he mocks death. Death itself. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you can look at the deathbed and know you will win. And he mocks death. He says, where is your victory? I don't even feel it anymore. Where is your sting? Oh, brothers and sisters, no one could beat death except those who are in Christ. They put you on breathing machines, right? They put you on apparatus. They put you on all these things if you're ever in the medical field. But they can't ultimately beat it. And Christ says, you overwhelmingly defeat it. Why? Because I've given you eternal life. And when you will be ushered into heaven with me, in paradise with me, you overwhelmingly win in Christ. I could say bye to my beloved brothers, to George Fox, to Steve Fernandez, my pastor. And I know they won. Now, you are de- de- you are the defeaters of Satan. Now this is this is huge, okay? Now this is the way not to apply, you don't apply it this way. You don't go out looking for fights with Satan, okay? I'm going to cast them out of here, cast them out of here. I cast them out of my broken down jalopy car, right? That's that's not, that's nowhere in the scriptures. But what God says that in Christ, because Christ defeated Satan, you share in that. And I got to show this to you. Look at um, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. These are the tribulational saints. And he says, and they overcame him. Verse 11. They overcame him. Let me start at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, that is the devil, of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God Day and night, verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced with death. They overcame Satan through Christ. Notice in Romans 16. You have to look at this text. You've got to look at this text. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And as Paul is ending this book in Romans chapter 16. He says something astonishing. Verse. Verse 19. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil and innocent in what is evil. Look at verse 20. Now look very carefully, okay? Look very carefully. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. Does it say his feet? What does it say? What's it say? Under your Do you see that? The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Because we are in Christ. He is the second Adam. God is going to humiliate Satan. And put him under your feet. Secondly. Secondly. Keep believing in his son. Secondly. Secondly. Keep loving his people. Keep loving his people. Look at 1 John. Go back to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And whoever, 1B, the second part. Whoever loves the father, loves the child born of him. Look at uh, 2A too as well. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments another mark of being a christian who is victorious is not only that he keeps believing in christ she keeps believing in christ but also she keeps he keeps loving his people loving his people see when there's a when there's a person who says they love jesus they love studying they love the bible and they don't love to be in church, they don't like to be with his people, there is something very wrong. And I would even say that according to this verse, this person doesn't even know Christ. He says, Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Notice this. Uh, we're just going to take a survey of 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. Notice he says this, The one who loves his brother, abides in the light, there's no cause for stumbling. Brother here, in context, are other Christians in the local church. Verse 11, but the one who hates his brother is in darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says, if you love other Christians and you believe in Christ, it is an indication that you are a victorious Christian. Notice in chapter 3, in verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. He says, it is so clear that you should be able to notice. You should be able to see it in your life. If you just can't stand Christians. You just can't stand being around them. If you just can't stand fellowshipping or spending time with them or you always got something else to do rather than to be with his people the bible says you don't love them the bible says because it says the children of god and the children of the devil are obvious you don't love his people you don't love him Chapter three at verse fourteen, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. There is no room for dry theology without a warm love for one another. You cannot love God and not you cannot love God and ignore your brothers and sisters in the faith. Chapter three, verse seventeen. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Chapter 3, verse 23, This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You notice the verse, go back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. He says, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. If you profess to love God and you call God your father and you have a relationship through Jesus Christ, it says you love the child born of him. That means you love other Christians. In our home, we have this little room we call the shaft of, it used to be the mine shaft where kids would play, right? Now we call it the shaft of reconciliation. Right? They go, what? And when, when our kids get into a fight or when mommy and daddy gets into an argument, not fight, right? When we get into a, a difficulty, we go, in the shaft. Get in the shaft. Make it right, right? As a father, if there is discord in the family, it's my job to bring about peace, to help peace come. And peace doesn't happen by ignoring it. Peace doesn't happen by glossing it over. Peace happens when there is confession, repentance, and reconciliation, okay? Confession, repentance, and reconciliation. That's a whole nother lesson. You've got to teach your kids this. I was not taught this as a kid. I struggled through this and I I'd never asked for forgiveness. I had to learn this. But you've got to teach your kids this. This is the way that God has told us to deal with conflict. Confession, repentance, and reconciliation. But as a father, I know I have to have my finger on the pulse of the climate in our family. If there is fighting or there is discord over dishes or who didn't do the dishes or whose turn it was to do the wash, or if there's discord in that, it is my job to keep the peace and to make sure that they reconcile in Christ. Brothers and sisters, God the Father, notice he says what it says here in the text, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. God the Father has created, has provided love For you to have with other brothers and sisters. He has done that by what? Not changing the outside of you. But changing the inside of you. By causing you to be born again. He has taken out the heart of stone. He has given you a heart of flesh. Says Ezekiel. And now your heart beats after God. And for one another. And the father will not let you stay warring with your brothers and sisters. The father, just like the father in any home, a good father in a home, he is going to bring about peace. And that is the reason if you have something against your sister or you have something against your brother in the faith, that you have to make it right. You know you can't sit there in an unreconciled state. You know you can't live with this bitterness. You can't live with it not being dealt with. You know, what is it? What is it that causes that? You've been born again, Christian. It is inconsistent to say you love God and not one another. And then he flips it and says, you can't can't love one another unless you love God. Notice he says here, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. If you love God, you love His children. If you love His children, you love God. It's because you love God, right? Keep loving, keep believing in his son, keep loving his people, and lastly, keep obeying his word. He says, first, and real briefly, I'll just put there, submission to God's word verifies your love for him. He says, observe his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. If there is someone who says they love God, oh, I love Jesus, and lives in immorality, oh, I love Jesus, and... And continues to walk away from him, walk away from the church. They're lying. The Bible says they're lying. Jesus said this in John 14, 14. Jesus said this. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It doesn't matter what you say with your mouth. I mean, I can't stand it. When I used to work on the outside and people would say they're Christians and They would curse a storm and they would live like they were not Christians and they would laugh at different jokes and just make fun of all these things. Jesus says, if you really do love me, you will keep my commandments. You could write that down, John 14, 15. I'll read John 15 for you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide abide in his love. Secondly, submission to God's word verifies your love for his word. Not only does it verify your love for him, but it verifies your love for his word. And his commandments, notice he says, verse 3b, his commandments are not burdensome. Mike read a passage that I love. Jesus gives an open invitation and he says, come to me who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary by your sin? Let me ask this question. Are you weary by your sin? Are you sick of it yet? Are you heavy laden? He wants you to just take that from you. Has it beat you up? Are you tired of playing? Are you tired of acting? Are you tired of playing the role, being good on the outside? Are you tired of it? He says, Come to me. I'm going to give you final rest. And you come to Christ by believing what he has done, by believing in who he is, that he is God who has come in the flesh to die on the cross. And if you have faith in him, and if you trusted him alone for, for all of your salvation, if you trusted him alone, For that your sins have been forgiven because they were paid on the cross, you will be saved and He will give you rest. Rest. No longer feeling guilty before God. No longer feeling like you owe anybody anything. He gives you rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you learn from me I am gentle and humble in heart he is not a dictator a tyrannical dictator he is gentle he says you will find rest for your souls and then he says for my yoke is easy and my load is light and what he's saying there is uh, in the farming agrarian community they used to put the yoke which is this wooden frame to help pull a plow. We used to see it where we were serving all the time. We would, me and the kids would say, man, that is a yoke. That is a straight yoke right there, right? We're from Vallejo. We didn't know anything else, right? But we would see it. And Jesus is saying, my commandments, my word, when your heart is new, you actually want to obey. Not perfectly. You won't be perfect, but you want to obey. That's why in John one, uh, in Psalm 119, you could say, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much in all riches. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. The word of God becomes sweet to you. It's not a burden. You want to hear it. Psalm 40 says, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book is written of me. I delight to do thy will. O my God, the law that is written in my heart. Brothers and sisters, may this encourage you. If you know Christ, that you are victorious in him. If you're believing in him. If you're loving others. And if you have a life of obedience. Those are the markers. Those are the traits of a true Christian. If you do not have those traits, God is telling you right now, you are not saved. You are playing around. You are not taking his call seriously. This has not occurred in you. Every Christian this occurs in. Every person who gets born into the family starts to love others. Believes in Christ. And starts to obey. If that has not happened. You can trust in him now. Yes you can. Remember he says come to me. Come to me. He is not a dictator. He is not an evil king. You come to Christ. He will give you rest for your souls. You can't sleep at night because of your sin. Because of your guilt. He will give you rest for your soul. Plead with others. Oh, come to Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Why? Why do you give us so much? Why are we rich in you? Why do we get to hear your word and... Why do you call us victors? Why do you crush Satan under our feet? Why do you have a love that is that will never be broken for us? Oh God, we don't deserve it. Thank you. Encourage the saint who is downcast encourage her encourage him oh god work in that sinner who has not repented let them quit playing games quit going to you with with deals god let them receive you holy in jesus name amen